In the mid-1800s, the western frontier of the United States, from the viewpoint of the civilized East, was believed to be a distant land, untamed, largely unsettled, and mostly unknown. Westward expansion through the latter half of the 19th century took place against a background of increasing lawlessness, created in part by the existing economic situation in the West. Riches in gold, silver, and cattle were abundant for some, yet the wealth they sought proved unreachable for many of those attracted by mining or ranching. After placer mining of stream beds was finished, the remaining hard rock mining was formidable, arduous, and required large, heavy machinery and equipment investments. Similarly, ranching required substantial capital to buy land and cattle to make an initial start. Therefore, those without money became common laborers and joined the large-scale seasonal unemployment of miners, cowboys, and others. They hoped for riches, but gained only disillusionment, a situation that tempted many men into criminal behavior. After April 9, 1865, a large number of men were mustered out of the army following the Civil War. These men found themselves unemployed, so thousands of refugees from the conflict between the states moved to the West. Some came to escape the discretions of civilization in the East. Others had only known fighting and killing during the war and were left with no trade or profession at the end of the conflict. With legitimate settlers and men aspiring to a new life, these immigrating hordes included draft evaders, deserters, and men with no future. This population was primarily young, male, and had no roots. Many of them had lost their homes in the war, and some had lost their families. As a result, many of them became settlers, farmers, itinerant cowboys, gamblers, prospectors, law enforcement officers, and railroad construction workers. These post-war years became the age of saloon brawls, stagecoach robberies, vigilante raids, and shootings in the saloons of the main streets of many western towns. Gunfights pitted lawmen against outlaw, cowboy against cowboy, cowboy against the gambler, and cattle barons against the settlers and sheep herders. Wild West Podcast proudly presents Bat Masterson in Tombstone, Part 1, Western Union, signed Wyatt Earp. At 8 o'clock a.m. Friday, I rolled out of the station at Kansas City and started a southwestward excursion to Dodge City. A couple of hours out, breakfast was announced, an event to a particular pleasure to experience what it was like to eat in a Pullman's on wheels. It was always a revelation to me to eat my first dinner of the day, and today was no exception. The service on the Santa Fe Railway never ceased in my admiration of the perfection of the arrangements and marvelous results achieved. The tables were covered with snowy linen and garnished with services of solid silver. The waiters, flitting about in spotless white, placed indeed as if by magic my menu. My choice was to be eggs, bacon, a delicious mountain brook trout, a selection of fruits and berries, and a sauce tangy and unpurchasable to augment my sweet-scented appetite to the clear air of the prairies. I washed the bonafide dishes down with bumpers of sparkling Krug while I sped along at the rate of 35 miles an hour. Agreed, it was the fastest travel I had ever experienced. 
then back to my luxurious couch, where I reminisced upon my younger days. These were the days when I was a railroad worker laying track for the Atchison and Santa Fe. In 1872, my brother Ed and I met a man named Raymond Ritter. At that time, Ritter was looking for men he could subcontract with for grading the railroad right-of-way. He told us that certain portions of the roadbed grading were sublet to minor contractors and private individuals with horses and equipment. Ritter asked my brother and me if we would assist him in filling his contract with Wiley and Cutter. I was 17 when I managed to persuade Ed, who was a year older, to venture forth on this new venture of grading track for the railroad. These were hard times for Ed and me when we decided to engage in the dangerous, sweaty, back-breaking, brawling work of building the railway. It was summer. In the heat wave, we lived in the early hours and long into the eventide. And under the summer sun, I felt the warmth of the brilliant rays. At the peak of our labors, the work crews laid two to five miles of track a day. We filled ravines as the track layers ran spidery trestles across the valleys and the plains. The flat cars carried rails to within a mile of the railhead. Then a light car, drawn by a single horse, galloped up to the front with its load of rails. Two men seized the end of a rail and started forward. The rest of the gang took hold by twos until the rail was clear of the car. The men would come forward at a run. Then, at the command of the foreman, the rail was dropped in its place right side up. Less than 30 seconds to a rail for each gang, and so four rails go down in a minute. When Ed and I finished the back-breaking job, we found that Mr. Ritter took advantage of our youth, and it skipped out on us. In addition, Ritter neglected to pay the $300 promised for the grading. We were both heartbroken and purse-broken. It was then we both considered our next move. I think I'll go home and see Ma and the kids, Ed told me. I've been mighty homesick, Billy, and I can't hide it anymore. So you better come with me. That's better than starving and being swindled out here. No, by God, I said. I'm going to stay here and lay for Ritter. He owes us $300, and he's going to pay up or I'll put a slug into him. I'll just wait here for a while, Ed. Ritter's going to be passing through here one of these days. The railroad will be pushing on for Granada across the Colorado line, and he's got contracts to fill up ahead. So Ed went home, and I went to work driving the team for a local tycoon named Tom Nixon. No longer an independent subcontractor, but a mere hireling like a swarm of Orientals and Irishers working on the railroad. Not long afterward, however, a friend came to me with news that Ritter was coming through on tomorrow's train and had a roll of $3,000 on his hip. At the time, I had bought a six-shooter with my wages as a teamster. I was waiting when the westbound train rolled in the next day. I boarded it and found Ritter sitting in one of the cars. I hauled my debtor Ritter out of the platform at gunpoint. A crowd of loafers had gathered about to watch the fun. You owe me $300, I told the spluttering Ritter. And damn it all, if you don't pay up, you won't get back in that car alive. I'll never forget his eyes. How my rage burnt him to ash. I sensed Ritter's fears had evaporated like water under an early summer sun. I glared into his eyes. He was weakening under my threats. This is robbery, Ritter whelped as if he was appealing to the crowd. Somebody run and get the marshal. I'm being robbed in broad daylight, Ritter yelled.
Have you ever wondered what the band ACDC has to do with the missing town of Dublin, Wisconsin? Or who gets to decide what music plays at the end of the world? Or whether or not the largest unsolved art heist in history was actually a cover for a different crime? Maybe you haven't wondered about these things, but that's okay. On 31, we dive into strange, true, but often lesser known stories and the interesting theories that surround them. From space to sports, lost media to internet lore, 31 has something for everyone. Find 31 on your favorite podcast platform and dive into the why behind the weird with me, Quinn Lovecraft. 31, the why behind the weird. I jammed the gun in Ritter's ribs. I told Ritter, I'm only collecting what you owe me, and everybody here knows it for a fact. You try to run out on Ed and me, but you're going to pay off on the barrelhead. Ritter shrugged, pulled out a roll of bills tied with a buckskin thong, and peeled off $300. I heard the loafers and roundabouts cheer. The sounds of the crowd became part of the happy center of my brain, reaching in and pulling out the joy. There was a feeling of jubilation in the gathering as I was elated. I jumped off the train. The group and I all headed for the nearest saloon. The drinks, of course, were on me. I was at home in this crowd, for we sang and celebrated together. These thoughts about the early days working for the railroad made me tired and weary. There, on my couch, I fell asleep. I slept the sleep of the just, and only awoke to the sound of the whistle at six o'clock to find myself at the crossing of the Arkansas River, 335 miles from Kansas City, 10 hours and 8 minutes out. I arrived in Dodge City on December 10, 1880, and found the Dodge City Times again reporting my progress about town. The headline of the Times read, W.B. Masterson, former sheriff of Ford County, spent several days here. He lives in Kansas City. That was welcomed by a host of friends. As I walked down Front Street in Dodge City, I began to think back to the early days, a time when the town started its preparations for the cattle trade and the Texas Cowboys. In a way, Dodge City owes its fame to a tiny tick, Bufilus microplus. The tick and the disease it carried were endemic amongst the herds of the Texas Longhorns. In 1876, the demarcation line was moved to the 100th meridian, making Dodge City the new queen of the cattle towns. I looked down First Street towards the Dodge House, Deacon Cox's famous hotel, which was two blocks east of 2nd Avenue. Then, unexpectedly, a wintry wind swept across the street with bold honesty, a rawness that brings one's soul into the gentle cloud-filtered rays. Before me, the snow made these familiar streets a canvas for dreams. I saw each sculpted flake with eyes at rest, the chaotic dance of billions uniting over the town. These daydreams became my hearth fire, bringing the hint of a newborn smile, one that lifts every part of what I am and how I arrived at this destination. I asked the icy wind to bring me to higher senses, to wake within me that which rested once upon these streets. Once again, I reflected back to 1878, when Ben Springer's theater, the cavernous comique used to be, was at the corner of Front and Bridge Street. The theater was divided between a bar and gambling parlor in front and a variety theater in the back. In July of 1878, the comique featured an entire vaudeville show headlined by that unequaled and splendidly matched Eddie Foy and Jimmy Thompson team. But unfortunately, those were the days of prominent performers gone now, 
along with its tragic killing of Dora Hand. Even though the town still prospered from gambling halls, prostitution, and whiskey sales, a reform movement was taking place. Dodge City was changing, and I was no longer a part of this place, but thought it still to be an adventurous place. I could do some gambling here and visit with some of my brother and some friends. Soon after the start of the new year, while in Dodge City, I received a telegram from Wyatt Earp in Tombstone. The telegram read, Western Union, February 2nd, 1881, to William Masterson. Serious trouble brewing in Tombstone. I need your help. Could you arrange to come to the new mining camp? A job awaits you. Signed, Wyatt Earp, Deputy Sheriff, Tombstone District. February 8, 1881 was a cold day when I boarded the westbound train out of Dodge City to Trinidad, Colorado. The snow danced in the light, a choreographed ballet conducted by gentle wind. The streets of Dodge City had become tired old page, but the trip to Tombstone, Arizona, a more sunny forecast awaited me. From warmest lungs came a clear blue sky, a humble gift to myself that is simply heaven-bound. And today's gift is the beauty of the cold winter day to show me the way that I would otherwise never have witnessed. As the old steam engine churned the iron wheels below, I took a seat, pulling forward and then backward, clinging and clanking to the metal rails below me. The engine whistle blew in three short successions, signaling a crossing as I pulled from the inside pocket of my topcoat the telegram I received from Wyatt Earp. I once again read with interest the telegram sent from Tombstone. I remembered Wyatt when he was a rambling man of certain unrighteous conscience. The wayfaring Wyatt Earp spent some of his time in and out of Dodge City between 1876 and 1879. He served as an active, rugged, and respected enforcer against Texas Cowboys. Wyatt, like me, held the position of policeman and assistant marshal in Dodge. Unfortunately, in Dodge City, he and I, along with others, took part in becoming gun hands. Lamentably for Wyatt, one of these gunfights ended with fatal results for a young cowboy. The killing occurred when a group of Texas cowboys galloped down the street and fired multiple shots into the Kameek Theater. As the Texans headed out of town, Earp, my brother Jim Masterson, and others ran outside and opened up with gunfire. When the smoke cleared, young Texan George Hoy lay on the ground, mortally wounded in his arm. He died of his wounds a month later. Nobody knows who fired the fatal shot, but Wyatt is woeful upon George Hoy's death. I sat back in my seat and looked out my window, watching the landscape of the prairie roll out before me recollecting back on the many conversations Wyatt and I had about life. I remembered how Wyatt became a professional gambler, a skill he pursued as a pastime or into an occupation. During the 1870s, when not in Dodge City, Wyatt ranged widely over the Great Plains, often gambling assiduously from the Black Hills far north in Dakota Territory to Mobiti down in the Texas Panhandle and on to turbulent Las Vegas, New Mexico. Wyatt would sometimes revert to shady practices as a scam artist or confidence man in these travels, apparently sidelined activities by his persistent card-playing and gambling. Finally, in December 1879, Wyatt, James, and Virgil Earp moved into Tombstone's wondrous new mining town. Up to this time, Wyatt had shown two faces to the world, 
One was a challenging but respected lawman. The other was a thorough rounder, gambler, accused horse thief, prostitute's companion, saloon habituate, bunko artist, and confidence man. Late in his Dodge City days, there had been a glimmering of a respectable Republican, for in Dodge City, Wyatt took a wife by the name of Maddie Blaylock and was commended for his honorable Christian virtues. Maddie was working in a brothel when she met Wyatt and led a fleeting life, learning all there was to know about the management of brothels under the watchful eye of Bessie Earp, the wife of Wyatt's brother James, and becoming addicted to opium and whiskey. After leaving Wichita, Wyatt and Maddie spent time in Dodge City for three summers. They were part of the sporting scene, with Wyatt hiring out his gun to the law enforcement agency. Then, like all gamblers in cow towns, Wyatt spent the winters in Texas and New Mexico, where Wyatt gambled and Maddie kept busy. I arrived in Trinidad during the evening hours. I remember Trinidad well and always thought the township would be a good place to settle down. In 1876, the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad reached El Moro, just a few miles away, and two years later, the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad connected to Trinidad. The railroads made the city a vital distribution point for traffic between the plains and the southwest. When the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railway reached Santa Fe, New Mexico in 1880, the weekly New Mexican printed and the old Santa Fe Trail passes into oblivion. So I took a carriage to the main and commercial streets intersection and checked in at the Grand Union Hotel. The three-story Grand Union Hotel, built in 1879 of brick and trimmed in stone, was my kind of place, with its terrazzo-floored lobby leading into a Rococo ballroom. In addition, the hotel housed a gaming room, saloon, and smoking parlor. I thought to myself, tonight would be a night to remember. My mind craved a higher buzz, where a chance is involved instead of certainty, such as if the one you love will say yes or not. There are natural gambles when a child sets out to catch a butterfly or a frog, yet what happens when the healthy ways to gamble are no longer enough to cover up an absence of steady and dependable love in childhood? Well, that's when you become a gambler. That's when you become vulnerable to the prey of every empathy-deficient swindler and mobster out to whatever money they can get at your expense. The gambling hall is where the weak become legally robbed, and the criminals live large on their gains. I was ready to play. I had become a gambler, and the game of chance rang loudly in my brain. The next morning, I headed back to the depot and boarded a construction train bound for New Mexico. I could only smile at my earnings from the night before, as luck, for now, was with me. It would be a day's ride to Santa Fe before I changed trains on the new Santa Fe line to head south in New Mexico. Unfortunately, the ride to New Mexico would be a less pleasurable experience, with only third-class accommodations, for I was forced to take the journey in the caboose attached to the construction train. However, it came upon me from my experience that people do not realize how primitive the construction trains are, especially on a perilous journey across the southwestern plains when traveling within the confines of the ordinary caboose. For many, the dangers of a journey southwest from the terminus of the Santa Fe Railroad were frightful, and unless urged by imperative reasons, such journeys were abandoned. The accounts of daily scalpings by Indians are a little too realistic, 
even for the most hardened seekers after adventure. That is why, on these journeys, I permanently mounted these rail cars with my Winchester rifle and two sidearms with plenty of ammunition to take on rowdiness. Making my way through the caboose, I found a small band of determined-looking men. Each man armed to the fullest extent, save one fine-looking gentleman who wore a silk-top hat whose only weapon was a silk umbrella. I moved my way through the crowd to where there was an open seat. One man, sitting on the edge of the wooden seat, placed a glare at me. I tipped my hat to him in a greeting way. It was like he wanted to establish me as a foe. I smiled at his rebuke to avoid a fight or further confrontation. The man sitting next to him whispered, That's him, Bat Masterson. This statement conveyed a realness to the man's hateful emotion with great effectiveness and clarity. As I pulled my coat back, the glare became a smile, revealing my holstered Colt 45. Do you mind me taking up the space across from you? I asked. Not at all, the man responded. Next, another gentleman joined us who seemed excited to introduce himself. My name is George T. Buffum, and the man who sits in front of you is the Honorable William H. Stillwell, exclaimed Buffum. Now, Mr. Stillwell here is a recently appointed associate judge for the Territory of Arizona and is on his way to his new official duties. Is that so? I said. Pleased to meet the both of you. I am. I know who you are, Mr. Masterson, interrupted Buffum. Most everyone here knows who you are. I'm glad to have such a redoubtable companion on our journey. Well, thank you, I replied. Now, what about you, Mr. Stillwell? I'm most interested in your official duties in the Arizona Territory, for I am headed to Tombstone. In short, I'm from New York, replied Stillwell. I was first appointed as an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of Arizona in January of this year. After that, I moved to Prescott, Arizona, to take my place on the bench and as a trial judge of the 3rd Judicial District. The Territorial Legislature then reassigned me to the 1st Judicial District in the southern part of the Arizona Territory. I'm also headed to Tombstone to oversee some mining claim disputes. Stillwell paused and leaned forward as if he wanted to ask me a question. May I ask, what will be your business in Tombstone, Mr. Masterson? I will be joining a few friends in a gambling enterprise, I replied. That would not be the Earp brothers, Stillwell asked. I hear they have stirred the pot in Tombstone. What I understand, Wyatt and Morgan are working as shotgun messengers on the treasure-bearing coaches that plied the trail between the Silver Camp and the railroad. From what Wyatt told me, he wanted to establish a stage line between the Boom Camp and Benson, I said. Yes, that is true replied Stillwell, but their master plan was spoiled. When they arrived to sign off on the contracts, two lines were already operating. Wells Fargo had already contracted the mail and shipping goods. From what I understand, Wyatt accepted Pima County Sheriff Shibble's appointment as a deputy sheriff for the Tombstone District. Virgil is the appointed deputy United States Marshal and had been city marshal of Tombstone for over five months. The third brother, Morgan, is still riding shotgun for Wells Fargo. So they are back in the old business, I thought to myself. They're running the law on one side of the street and a gambling house on the other side. So what came of the Oriental Saloon, I asked. Well, sir, that seems to be the problem. The saloon, that is, replied Stillwell. Wyatt has acquired a financial interest in the Oriental. 
The Oriental is one of Tombstone's largest and most prosperous saloons and gambling houses. Its plush gaming rooms are jointly operated by three of the best gamblers in the West. These noted gamblers are Lou Rickabaugh, Dick Clark, and Bill Harris. But from what I understand, other gambling house managers are jealous of the Oriental's popularity. So they have detailed a gang of ruffians to hurrah the place nightly in an effort to scare away patrons. I know all three of these partners, I replied. They were sportsmen in Dodge City. So how is it that Wyatt got involved? Well, it seems as though since Wyatt was now wearing a badge, the partners offered Wyatt a quarter interest in the gambling concession, stated Stillwell. It looks as if much of Wyatt's reputation from Dodge has followed him to Tombstone. The hope might be that his fighting stature would daunt the hell-raising intruders. I am thinking, Mr. Masterson, that is where you come into play, to assist him in keeping the Oriental quiet. At the end of the Santa Fe steel, members of our party transferred from the construction train to an overland coach. The overland would carry us to Deming, New Mexico, and the southern Pacific through Apache country. The rainsman looked down on me from the box of the coach. Why don't you ride shotgun, he said, up here with me. That rifle you're carrying will be a swell of a defense against any intruders. So why don't you just hop up here aboard this carry-all and help your friend join us in the dicky? Say, Mr. Masterson, how about a loan for one of your six-shooters? asked the judge before boarding the coach. Sure, judge, I replied. By common consent, I was given the seat beside the rangeman. The judge boarded the coach's interior, and Mr. Buffum and I climbed on top, with Buffum taking the seat above the rangeman. The driver yelled at his horses, cracked his whip, and steered the stagecoach skillfully through the gate. We were off. It was a glorious February morning, and all the landscape was brilliant with sunshine. There was a freshness and breeziness in the air. I felt an exhilarating sense of emancipation from all sorts of cares and responsibilities. We were reeling along through New Mexico. Just here, the land was rolling, a grand sweep of regular elevations and depressions as far as the eye could reach, like the stately heave and surge of the ocean's core after a windstorm. I thought about how I welcomed this journey and the love of fresh air from following the ever-onward road. The jolts of the wagon wheels sliding along the ruts in bold jerks, feeling a sense of pride in each one. And this journey is not about a destination, nor a rival point. This journey is about the adventure, the traveling companions, and the reason for the noble struggle. Friends come, friends go. Often I set out alone, yet I have met many enemies along the trails. Each of them has their story. I have my compass, I have my path, and I have my quest. I do genuinely love my adventurous west. Our coach ride was an imposing cradle on wheels, a great swinging and swaying rostrum of the grandest description. Six stunning horses drew us, and I sat by the side of the rainsman, the legitimate captain of the craft, for it was his business to take charge and care of the mails, baggage, express matter, and passengers. We three were the only passengers on this trip. I looked down into the coach as the judge sat on the back seat inside. Hey, judge, how's that ride? I asked. Plenty of jolt for me, replied the judge in a convulsed manner. All about the rest of the coach was full of mailbags, for we had a few days of delayed mail with us. 
The cargo about us touched our knees. A vertical wall of mail rose up to the roof and wobbled forcefully all around the judge. There was a great pile of it strapped on top of the stage, and both the fore and hind boots were full. But as it turned out, there was no use for the weapons. So the coach continued unmolested by Apaches to Deming, seven miles east. Deming was the terminus of the Southern Pacific, which was building east toward El Paso, Texas. It consisted of several saloons and a boxcar used by the construction gangs as an eating place. Although the car provided the only available dining facilities for stagecoach passengers, the railroad men seemed to resent the intrusion of travelers into what they considered their private dining room. I watched Judge Stilwell manage to squeeze himself into a vacant seat at a rough plank table just before a group of gandy dancers shouldered their way into the car. On one of the newcomers jabbed a grimy finger in the direction of his honor. See that long, lank cuss fresh from New York just filling himself as though he'd been through a famine while we railroad boys have to wait, he roared. The room was suddenly quiet, and Stillwell's face turned scarlet. Then I, who had been waiting patiently with the rest, cut loose with a burst of colorful Dodge City whorehouse abuse directed at the railroaders. This argument grew from nowhere into a tornado. In my rage, I became blinded to the delicate petals of heart and soul. I assumed I was right when I had no real reason to vent. The words I spoke in such well-intentioned piousness triggered something in me that came from a rage of discontent. The muster of terms came about me in great wrath and with resounding oaths. I resented this insult to my friend and ended with, Buffum, you just take the first vacant seat and let these sons of the borough wait. The railroad men glanced at one another, looked at me, glimpsed at my Sharps rifle and my two Colt revolvers, and they saw my determined face as I scowled at them. At that point in the conversation, the railroad men's appetites fled before my terrible presence. Not a man moved, and when the first chair was vacated, Buffum seated himself next to the judge. When Judge Stilwell had finished eating, he pushed his plate back, stood up, and said politely, I'm sorry, gentlemen, to have kept you waiting, but I was famished. Then, before the construction workers could recover from their surprise, I strode forward. No disrespect to you, Judge, I said, but I will take your chair myself. The Gandhi dancers waited, fuming, but silent. Stillwell, Buffum, and I traveled west on a Southern Pacific work train. As a courtesy to the new judge, the railroad management hitched an old passenger car to the train. In it, my two companions and I journeyed as far as Benson, Arizona. The town of Benson was born from the union of the Southern Pacific Railroad and the mining regions of the San Pedro Valley. The Southern Pacific came overland from California and chose Benson as a location to cross the San Pedro River. The railroad found it necessary to establish a junction point to obtain ore and ship freight to the mines at Tombstone, Fairbank, Contention, and Bisbee. Copper and silver ore was brought in covered wagons to Benson and then shipped out on the railroad. At Benson, I said goodbye to my two road friends and swung down to catch the stage to Tombstone. That's it for now. Remember to check out our Wild West podcast shows on iTunes, podcast, or at wildwestpodcastbuzzsprout.com. You can also catch us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash wildwestpodcast or on our YouTube channel at Whiskey and Westerns on Wednesday. Thanks for listening to our podcast. 
Join us next time as we take you back to the Dodge City Variety Show of 1878 and beyond. You can learn more about the legends of Dodge City by visiting our website at worldfamousgunfighters.weebly.com. If you would like to purchase one of our books, you can go to worldfamousgunfighters.weebly.com slash books.html. Dot dot